book of Job. It is a story of suffering and of trying to make sense of grief and a lot of wondering about where God is in all of it. As the story of Job is told, Satan, the adversary, comes and presents himself before God. And it is then that God asks him, quote, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. End quote. Thus begins the devil's ravages against God's beloved. Satan wants nothing more than to get Job to curse God and die. Job loses his herds of sheep and camels to a raiding band of Chaldeans. His servants are killed by an attacking troop of Sabians, and his children die after their home is struck by a great wind. Job himself is eventually smitten with boils. Though our tribulations in this world may differ from those of Job, one thing is clear. Suffering and loss are a part of what it means to be human. We all have our scars and our stories of woe. My dad, for example, took his life when I was in high school, and I myself constantly battled depression. We all have sorrow, and we all have burdens that we bear. It is why the book of Job has such lasting and universal appeal. And when we finally do hear from Job, Though he does not curse God, he does quite literally curse the day he was born and the stars. Yes, the stars. Job curses the stars. In fact, Job rains down imprecations on light itself. Quote, let the stars of its twilight be darkened, end quote. He says, regarding the day of his birth, he calls upon those who can, quote, rouse Leviathan, end quote, to curse his birthday right off the calendar. Theologian John E. Hartley, in his commentary on the book of Job, writes, quote, The only way for the day of Job's birth to be removed from the calendar is to have it removed from the yearly cycle through a counter-cosmic incantation, a spell designed to turn cosmic order, in this case a day ruled by the light of life, into chaos, a gap of time dominated by darkness. A counter-cosmic incantation reverses the stages God took in creating the world. It was believed that God created each day in the same way that he created the world, Genesis 1-1 through 2-4. Thus, every day, being a new creation, bore witness to God's lordship and his creative powers. In contrast, chaos is an unorganized and lifeless mass of water overshadowed by total darkness. But since the day of Job's birth had already been created, the only way that Job might vanish would be to have that day returned to the primordial chaos. If no light had shone on that day, there would have been no life, no birth, particularly Job's. With this spell, Job seeks to become totally non-existent, end quote. How many of us can relate to that? And when God arrives at the end of the book, the first series of questions he asks Job are in relation to the heavens and the earth, showing Job just how little he knows about the light he tried to curse. Quote, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding who set its measurements since you know, or who stretched the line on it, on what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. End quote. Job is speechless, but God was just beginning. Quote, Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades, 
or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth a constellation in its season and guide the bear with her sons? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens or fix their rule over the earth? End quote. In this sense, God presents his forlorn servant with an ancient version of the argument from fine-tuning. In fact, God's response to Job is the longest uninterrupted discourse of God's speaking recorded in the Bible, and it is mostly all about what he has created. Everything from stars and snow to lions and Leviathan, the primordial fire-breathing serpent who has a tail like an enormous cedar tree, mentioned in the 41st chapter. As noted in part one of this series on fine-tuning, quote, there be dragons, end quote. God's answer to Job's suffering, in short, is an extended discourse on creation, which includes things too wonderful for Job's comprehension. But it is my own particular point of view that the spirit behind Job's initial cursing of his birthday and of the stars and light in general is something akin to what pervades modern theoretical models of our universe today most of which marginalize or altogether completely exclude God as the ultimate reason for why the heavens and the earth exist. Consider, for example, what Stanford University theoretical physicist Leonard Susskind says. The story that, quote, God made man with some purpose that involved man's ability to appreciate and worship God, end quote, is not worth retaining in the modern age. Quote, let's forget about that story, End quote, Susskind exhorts, quote, the whole point of science is to avoid such stories, end quote. Intelligent life for Susskind is nothing more than, quote, a purely serendipitous consequence of physical principles that have nothing to do with our existence, end quote. We inhabit what Susskind calls, quote, a megaverse, end quote, his version of what is more commonly called the multiverse, that is, many universes in which all the numbers and laws lined up in just such a way as to produce us. But why exactly did we get the numbers and laws we did? Why us in the first place? Susskind believes that, quote, somewhere in the megaverse, the constant equals this number. Somewhere else, it is that number. We live in one tiny pocket where the value of the constant is consistent with our kind of life. That's it. That's all. There is no other answer to the question, end quote. In other words, given an enormous amount of alternative universes, one of them is bound to give us the parameters necessary to produce intelligent life. In their book, The Grand Design, the late Stephen Hawking and Leonard Mladenow quote the late British astronomer Fred Hoyle, who said, quote, I do not believe that any scientist who examined the evidence would fail to draw the inference that the laws of nuclear physics have been deliberately designed with regards to the consequences they produce inside the stars, end quote. Hoyle studied the wonders of the carbon atom and came to the conclusion that it all looked like someone had, quote, monkeyed with the physics, end quote. But what do Hawking and Mladenow conclude about what appears to be overwhelming evidence of precision and design throughout the universe? Quote, what can we make of these coincidences? Luck in the precise form and nature of fundamental physical law is a different kind of luck from the luck we find in environmental factors. It cannot be so easily explained and has far deeper physical and philosophical implications. Our universe and its laws appear to have a design that is both tailor-made to support us and, if we are to exist, 
leaves little room for alteration. That is not easily explained and raises the natural question of why it is that way. The discovery relatively recently of the extreme fine-tuning of so many of the laws of nature could lead at least some of us back to the old idea that this grand design is the work of some grand designer, that the designer is God, end quote. The authors, however, assure us that this is not their conclusion. Quote, that is not the answer of modern science, end quote, they tell us. Instead, they posit a multiverse, which they believe, quote, can explain the fine-tuning of physical law without the need for a benevolent creator who made the universe for our benefits, end quote. Since they assume the existence of an untold multitude of other universes in which countless billions of such systems like our own solar system also exist, they think that, quote, the fine-tunings in the laws of nature can be explained by the existence of multiple universes, end quote. But let us for the moment grant that there are other universes out there. There might be, or that our own universe is infinite. What are the implications? Consider what physicist Brian Greene believes. If the cosmos, for example, is infinite, he argues, way out in the far reaches of this quixotic space-time fabric, quote, there's a galaxy that looks just like the Milky Way, with a solar system that's the spitting image of ours with a planet that's a dead ringer for Earth, with a house that's indistinguishable from yours, inhabited by someone who looks just like you, who is right now reading this very book and imagining you in a distant galaxy, just reaching the end of this sentence, end quote. And if there are other universes out there, consider the ponderings of MIT theoretical physicist and cosmologist Max Tegmark. In the opening of his book, Our Mathematical Universe, the physics calculations he has studied have also led him to conclude that it is possible for him to be both dead and alive in parallel universes. If you think this sounds, quote, absurd, end quote, Tegmark writes, quote, and that the physics has muddied the waters, it gets even worse. If I'm in these two different places in two parallel universes, the one version of me will survive. If you apply the same argument to all the other ways I can die in the future— it seems there will always be at least one parallel universe where I never die. Since my consciousness exists only where I am alive, does that mean I'll subjectively feel immortal? If so, will you, too, find yourself subjectively immortal, eventually the oldest person in the universe? End quote. Is this really science anymore? According to Tegmark, yes it is. Like Green, though, he is not too troubled by the fact that these parallel worlds will never be empirically verifiable. Exploring what he calls the level four multiverse is, quote, easier, end quote, than even exploring, quote, our own universe, because it doesn't require rockets or telescopes, merely computers and ideas, end quote. That's it, a laptop and a creative imagination, and you can arrange the numbers in such a way as to make it seem as though there are copies of you in other galaxies. Tegmark admits, quote, I've therefore had lots of fun over the years writing computer software to perform the sort of mathematical structure tabulation and classification, end quote, behind the level four multiverse. The math, in other words, tells him it is possible. Quote, as a theoretical physicist, I judge the elegance and simplicity of a theory not by its ontology, but by the elegance and simplicity of its mathematical equations. And it's quite striking to me that the mathematically simplest theories tend to give us multiverses. 
It's proven remarkably hard to write a theory that produces exactly the universe we see and nothing more. End quote. So then, do megaverses, multiverses, or an infinite universe explain fine-tuning? Not really. They only push the question of fine-tuning back a step, for there would have to be certain parameters, certain physical constants, that would allow for a universe-generating mechanism of some kind. Billions of photocopies, in other words, do not finally explain the mechanics of the photocopier itself. It is Carl Sagan who popularized the idea that we human beings are made of star stuff. The idea is that the carbon found in our bodies originated in supernovae, in which the necessary elements for our biological life were forged. It remains a matter of pure conjecture, however, as to exactly how carbon goes from supernovae to human sentience. In the pages of scripture, however, we are called bearers of light and are sometimes compared to the stars themselves. For example, Genesis 15:5 or Daniel 12:3, Matthew 5:14 through 16, Philippians 2:15, and 1 Thessalonians 5:5. 5, 5. When we consider once more all the necessary aspects of our biological existence, such as the balance of forces between the protons and neutrons in the nucleus of an atom, the charge of the electron, the force of gravity, and the unusual properties of our own sun, not to mention light itself, what better explains our existence? Supernovae or superintelligence? Consider J.R.R. Tolkien's view of nature. He saw creation quite sacramentally. The inscrutably wondrous topography of Tolkien's Middle Earth is like God's poetic descriptions of creation in the book of Job, a landscape, quote, invested with mystery, end quote, a poema penned into existence by, quote, a man of extreme contrasts who was never moderate. Love, intellectual enthusiasm, distaste, anger, self-doubt, guilt, laughter, each was in his mind exclusively and in full force when he experienced it. And at that moment, no other emotion was permitted to modify it, end quote. It may very well be that Middle-earth is actually the landscape of Tolkien himself, inside and out, a loamy, light-drenched autobiography of sorts, a terrestrial fairy tale of his, quote, close friendship with the earth, end quote, which tells of how hope, often inexplicably, quote, came to him in the darkness, end quote, and sustained him through times of great and, quote, profound melancholy, end quote. The terrain of his story is that of a sub-creator who took painstaking care of his creation. Quote, he felt that every detail of his cosmos needed attention, end quote. His biographer, Humphrey Carpenter, suggests from, quote, cabbages and potatoes to fires, smokes, and lights, memories of wind and trees and sun on the grass, end quote, Middle-earth contained the very morrow of a man who experienced the lucid sharpness of a two-edged terrestrial pilgrimage, the intense joys and great sorrows, the light and the darkness, to the core of his being. As Tolkien wrote to a friend, quote, It is written in my lifeblood, such as that, thick or thin, and I can do no other, end quote. The lifeblood of John Ronald Rule Tolkien is the fount from which his natural theology still flows to this day, covering his readers and their children in a virtually indescribable awe and wonder. Like Job, 
Tolkien derived comfort in his trials by paying meticulous attention to the heavens and the earth as God's creation, as a fount of unceasing awe, wonder, and great mystery. Take the passage, for example, in Lord of the Rings, where the hobbits are held captive by an inscrutably miscreant willow tree. After the hobbits are extricated from the dark, tangled roots of the contumacious old man willow by the very numinously strange Tom Bombadil, Tolkien quite beautifully bathes his weary little creatures in a plethora of comforting light arrays. Candles for to kindle, the sun, light of stars shining, a pale starry night, twinkling lights of a house, of sun, stars, and moon, light on the budding leaf. And as the hobbits stood upon the threshold, a golden light was all about them. In fact, at night, nothing passes door and window of Bombadil's home, quote, save moonlight and starlight and the wind off the hilltop, end quote. Light is everywhere, candles, stars, sun and moon, light in the heavens and on the earth, in the house and on the leaves, almost as if it were itself a kind of omnipresent being. As cosmologist Luke Barnes says, quote, Together, the pieces of the universe achieve something. The sun gives life, the earth gives nutrients, the clouds give water. Plants convert all that into food and oxygen for animals to thrive and for human beings to be born, grown, learn, love, and labor. The whole system seems well thought out, suggesting that someone planned and created it. This is the crux of fine-tuning. Keep in mind, however, that fine-tuning by itself does not instantly make one a believer. It is not a knockdown argument against atheism or a purely secular view of the universe, but it does point us toward God. He does seem to pop up in the discussions about fine-tuning quite a bit. So come along with Alan and Dan on this episode of Good Heavens and be encouraged. Jesus knows your sorrows. He knows mine. The prophet Isaiah calls him a man of sorrows. He wept at Lazarus's tomb and was sorrowful unto death the night before his crucifixion. This is the Lord and maker of the universe, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Job's grief, Tolkien's grief, your grief, my grief, everyone's grief. But he is a man of sorrows who has overcome sorrow, grief, and even death itself. He was dead, but now is alive forevermore. It is what Tolkien himself called a eucatastrophe, a completely unexpected, undeserved, mind-boggling joy arising out of great tragedy and sorrow. In a letter written to his son Christopher in November of 1944, Tolkien writes, quote, The resurrection was the greatest eucatastrophe possible in the greatest fairy story, and produces that essential emotion, Christian joy, which produces tears, because it is qualitatively so like sorrow, because it comes from those places where joy and sorrow are at one, reconciled, as selfishness and altruism are lost in love. Of course, I do not mean that the Gospels tell what is only a fairy story, but I do mean very strongly that they do tell a fairy story, the greatest. Man, the storyteller, would have to be redeemed in a manner consistent with his nature, by a moving story. But, since the author, if it is the supreme artist and the author of reality, this one was also made to be, to be true on the primary plane, so that in the primary miracle, the resurrection, and the lesser Christian miracles, too though less, you have not only that sudden glimpse of the truth behind the apparent ananke of our world, 
but a glimpse that is actually a ray of light through the very chinks of the universe about us." End quote. In Greek mythology, Ananke is a mythical personification of the beginning of the cosmos and appears in Tolkien's poem, The Voyage of Arendelle, the Evening Star. So come and see how the fine-tuning of this wonderful universe in which we live does indeed point us toward our Creator, and perhaps, for a time, away from our sorrows too, giving us the ability, the grace, and the strength to lift up our eyes on high once more and see who created these stars, remembering His promises to us to be faithful, even when we are faithless. Come and consider the fixed order and the ancient statutes of the universe in light of who made you and who knows you better than you know yourself. Let the fixed order of the cosmos remind you as a believer of Christ and his unfailing love, a love that continues to move the sun and other stars. So Alan, the big question I think on everybody's mind is how do you go from fine-tuning, the the science of fine-tuning, uh, the possibility of fine-tuning, the parameters of fine-tuning to specifically God and maybe what what are some things that we can glean from fine-tuning that if we are believers can enhance uh, and encourage us in our faith, as it did for you um, in the 90s. Um, like, for example, I, I look at the, the Bible and look at Psalm 19, one of my favorite psalms. It says that the heavens declare the glory of God. And then, of course, in Genesis, we read that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then Genesis 1.14 says that he created the stars uh, and placed them in the firmament, the expanse of the heavens. Uh, And so it looks from the scriptures, we get a specific picture of who this creator God is. But fine-tuning doesn't get that specific, right? It just reveals what what Paul might be calling in Romans uh, his God's invisible attributes, right? His wisdom and his power and his his majesty. We can see his, his artistry, but it doesn't tell us uh, a whole lot specifically about who this God might be, correct? What's the, what, what, what's the proper approach for, for fine-tuning and for theology as you see it? So, yeah, I guess the, to answer your first question about yeah, how do you make this into an argument for the existence of God, mm-hmm. there's, there's a couple of approaches. You could go with a deductive approach like William Lane Craig does where you say it's due either to design, chance, or necessity— and I think that does cover all the bases, by the way. Sometimes skeptics will try to say, well, there could be other options. But it would really, I think, would need to be some combination of those three. Divine? In the sense that it's either designed or yeah. not. And if it's not designed, it's either just kind of a brute fact that you could attribute to chance. Right. One or of those, it's a necessity, some deeper law. One of those arguments is the multiverse, correct? The multiverse would be a, a good way of giving you more chances, potentially, if there's indeed ways to create many, many different universes. And by the way, it's not just having a lot of universes, but you have to have different constants in each yeah. universe. You still have the problem of fine-tuning a multiverse. Well, it does appear that these different theories for creating universes, not surprisingly, also require fine-tuning. Cause yes. You, anything that could just crank out tons of these universes with it's different cool. laws. Yeah, it's like a it's photocopier. It has for... to get a few things right. <laughs> right, it's like a photocopier for universes. You have to have a machine that does that, right? So um, how can we so, – so we might say that fine-tuning is what – what theologians have called for centuries general revelation. It reveals something to us about the attributes of a divine being, perhaps. 
Um, but then there is the special revelation that that is what we get from the scriptures. And we're not saying that fine tuning gets us gives us special revelation. But we are saying that as Christians who understand the scriptures, uh, fine-tuning can be a way to give you confidence in your faith, as it did for you when you were struggling with your faith. So so explain a little bit about how, you know, briefly, how, simply how we could take fine-tuning as, as believers and apply that to our faith uh, for our edification and encouragement. Sure. I mean, it, it, it is rather striking when you look at these levels of improbability and how many things had to be just right that I think it does deepen an appreciation that we could have as, as believers for the power of God and for the wisdom of God. Mm. That, you know, almost all ways of setting up the universe would have been horrible. Right. And now some people might still complain about various aspects. And yes. We, we could speak to that. We, we do know as Christians that it's it's a fallen world. There's yes. problems, but God has a plan for redemption. Right. There's the, I mean, it brings to mind the book of Job where he goes through terrible trial. And uh, when he first com- opens his mouth and, and starts to wail and lament uh, his sufferings, he actually ends up cursing the light of the stars at twilight. He wants them to go dark. He wants the day of his birth cursed by people who can rouse Leviathan. <laughs> <laughs> Job is is suffering, but so... God's answer to Job is look at or think about more deeply uh, what I have created. God is asking Job some pretty specific, what we would now call fine-tuning questions. Can you uh, can you tell me something about the created world, Job? But that's in- it's an interesting response to theodicy. A lot of times we think that the problem of evil is a philosophical one, and it certainly is. But it seems to be God's answer is look at what I've made. And so mm-hmm. as I see your own situation, that fine-tuning helped you out of some suffering mentally, emotionally, yeah. and that theologically— um, there are a lot of questions about the physical world that I can't answer. There's a lot of stuff, a lot of wonder and beauty in the universe, in the created order, uh, that I don't know much about. But I think we can know a lot about fine-tuning. And uh, I think, as and we agree, the best way to inform yourself is to pick up Dr. Barnes's book, right? <laughs> to it pick is. up it's, Luke's book. It's a great, it's a great book. Uh, he and Geraint... Did I get that right? Geraint Lewis. Geraint Lewis. Geraint is an atheist, as you pointed out. And they have a, they agree on the science. But they don't agree on the conclusions. But it's very readable. It's it's a very readable book, and we recommend that if you're interested in this topic, that you start there. Anything else, Alan? You've you've dealt with you've dealt with students. You've been in debates. You've studied this stuff. What what do you find to be the most valuable asset uh, of fine tuning for believers? Well, it's a it's a powerful argument for God right there at the foundations of science, and it does, it appeals only to very well accepted science. All of our best theories of science are what what we use to derive the fact that the universe is finely tuned for life. It's not dependent on new speculative theories. It's not based on questionable science. Uh, in fact, as Dr. Barnes likes to say, it's, it's not just like theoretical physics. It is theoretical physics. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's just, just exactly a type of theoretical physics. Right, right. It would be a great book for you guys, for, for anybody to start a book club around, have a book discussion about uh, I a, think fortunate that, universe. a fortunate yeah, universe would be absolutely. an excellent, excellent discussion book. So thank you, Alan, for your time. And we hope that these series of, of uh, podcasts 
have been informative, encouraging, and at least uh, have gotten you thinking about fine-tuning and how it may be of benefit to you to think about for your kids, for your family, for your friends who are scientifically minded, who may not know Christ. Um, it, it's a great opportunity, and we hope uh, this podcast and these, these lessons have been a blessing to you. So thank you again, Alan, for taking this time to visit us here at Good Heavens. And uh, anything else you'd like to add before we toodaloo? Thanks, Dan. I, I would like to, to thank you for the opportunity. It has spurred my own study of, of the YouTube videos, and it's actually motivated me to want to start my own oh, very YouTube cool. channel. Very so cool. I've made a little bit of progress towards some filming. Yeah. Yeah. And we did the one filming together. That's as you great. Know. Yeah. So I, w- I would like to take, and in fact, I have Dr. Barnes speaking at UTD as one of the things I can put onto that YouTube that's on, channel. That's on video. You have that. I have that, and I have Dr. Strauss, Michael Strauss oh. from OU, yeah. answering various questions. So, so once, you get, uh, once you get Luke's video up, let me know. We'll, we'll link it, and uh, we'll have uh, a smorgasbord of fine-tuning information at your fingertips. Thanks again, Alan. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.